I'm Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast with my co-host Frank Santo Padre. We're once again recording at Nutmeg with our engineer Frank Verderosa. Our guest this week is a writer, author, producer, film historian, and podcaster, and the director of popular movies, television shows, and miniseries. His TV work includes episodes of Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories, Freddy's Nightmares, Tales from the Crypt, Pretty Little Liars, Ravenswood, and Once Upon a Time, as well as two terrific horror anthology series of his own creation, Showtime's Masters of Horror and NBC's Fear Itself. Notable feature films include The Fly 2, Psycho 4, Batteries Not Included, Critters 2, and the Disney comedy Hocus Pocus with longtime friend and colleague Stephen King. He collaborated on the movies Sleepwalkers and Desperation, as well as the miniseries Bag of Bones and Stephen King's The Shining and The Stand, one of the highest-rated miniseries in television history. He's also a skilled interviewer and the host of his own podcast called Postmortem, which features interviews with horror legends such as John Carpenter, Roger Corman, the late Wes Craven, and Toby Hooper, who once I had lunch with and he paid. <laughs> you, you want more? He's the author of the books Ugly, Development Hell, and A Life in the Cinema, a member of the board of directors of the Hollywood Horror Museum, along with our previous podcast guests, Joe Dante, Victoria Price, and Sarah Karloff. And perhaps most important to yours truly, he also happens to be something of an expert on the life of my very favorite actor, Lon Chaney Jr. Please welcome to the show a man who must be a Marx Brothers fan because he was once in a rock band called the Horse Feathers Quartet. Quintet. Quintet. <laughs> I'll fuck up more and I only have one sentence to go. I think the show's half over. Yeah, this is longer than the stand. <laughs> a man of many talents and a full-fledged horror ambassador, Mick Garris. Thank you. Gee, that wow. is the kindest and longest introduction I've ever had. <laughs> and well, it's, it's Mick certain- Garris was found dead in his Los Angeles home. <laughs> Of, of an old apparent age. heart attack. <laughs> <laughs> Mick, thanks for coming and doing this. Well, it's a total honor to be asked, and I appreciate uh, spending some time with the legend. Oh, isn't that nice? 
He means you, Gil. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> we needed a Halloween episode, a Halloween guest this year. We had Tom Savini last year. Uh, we had he's great. We had Ron Chaney and uh, Janet Ann Gallo. Remember her? Janet Ann Gallo is. Uh, I'm I'm drawing a blank. Oh, you'll love this. Oh, this is shameful. <laughs> I, I want I'm you to blushing. leave. Right. How can you call yourself a Lon Chaney Jr. fan and not you know me that. <laughs> Janet Ann Gallo? He'll know immediately when you tell him. Okay, in the film. Ghost of Frankenstein with Cheney uh-huh. Jr. and Bela Lugosi. Mm-hmm. Janet Ann Gallo was the little girl uh-huh. who was being bullied by a gang of boys till uh, Frankenstein monster shows up and scares them away. Okay. I, I, I hang my head in shame, and I'm glad that this is a, an audio podcast because I'm blushing. Don't yes. hang your head in shame. She left the business like a year later. Oh, <laughs> like okay. She had a long career. <laughs> but this, this, Probably to, smart. To show you how obscure this and how focused this podcast is, we, we found her. Ah, that was some excavation. Yeah. And yeah, we, we, I was after her for years because <laughs> I just I've seen that movie 5,000 times. The other person he's been trying to get is Donnie Donegan, who was... Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Son of Frankenstein. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where he looks and sounds nothing like Basil Rathbone, <laughs> but he's Basil Rathbone's son. And I, I think, love how it said, yeah, well, hello. Yeah, he has a <laughs> southern accent, and he's the son of Basil Rathbone. Perfect casting. <laughs> and I guess... He was, uh, he's Frankenstein's son, so therefore he was raised in Germany, I guess. <laughs> Some Bavarian castle somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why was the band you were in, just to settle this before we go forward, Mick, why was the band called, it was called Horse Feathers Quintet, and I've seen it on the internet also referred to as Horse Feathers. It's just horse feathers. I don't know where horse feathers quintet came from, although there were five of us, so oh, you could call that, us it's, a quintet. That's all over the internet. Yeah. Um, we, uh, in the 1970s, we were a progressive rock band, and we were a big fan of uh, the Marx Brothers, as you uh, hinted at. And, um, you know, we thought uh, a name like horse feathers was perfect for a band that you couldn't describe. So rather than call ourselves bullshit, we called ourselves horse feathers. Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. See how we suss that out, how clever we are? <laughs> Extremely, yeah. yeah. Even though I got the name of the band wrong. No, you didn't. The internet did. Yes. Thank you for that. Now, I, I got to ask you before anything else, what, what did, you must have had some trepidations about doing a TV version of, of The Shining. Because, I mean, that that's a movie that's... Uh, I guess we'll have to use the word iconic. Yeah, I would I would have to agree with that. Uh, let's call it naivete. Um, it's fairly well known that Stephen King never liked the original film, the 1980 film, based on the book, because it goes so far afield from a book that was very, very personal to him. You know, it's about alcoholism and it's about the guilt of parenthood. Right. Uh, and I didn't even think about competing with the Kubrick film. I thought... King wrote the screenplay. He's producing this, uh, and it's very faithful to a book that I was in love with. And I never really had a clue about it until I, I went to 
um, to Gary Sinise, who had played the lead in The Stand a couple years before. And I said, would you be interested in playing Jack Torrance in The Shining? And he was the first one who woke me up to it by saying, you know, I'd be hesitant to step into Jack Nicholson's shoes. I went, oh, gee, I wonder if other people would think that. Interesting. So it was pure naivete, but we, King and I had had such a good experience doing The Stand together, and it was hugely successful that ABC said to him, what would you like to do next? And he said, I want to do The, St- the Shining and have it uh, to be something that's more faithful to the book and, and the themes that he was interested in doing. And uh, my thought was more about working with King again than it was about satisfying the fans of the Kubrick film. Right. What was, it, what was his principal objection, uh, uh, Stephen King's, to, to, to Kubrick's version of the film, of the book? Well, well, it's interesting. Just their personalities in their creative work alone. King, I would call very warm. And Kubrick is very cool or cold. You know, his his films are very intellectual and very mechanical in, in a really great way. He's, You know, it, The Shining is a great and iconic movie, uh, and it's a great Kubrick film, but it's not a very good Stephen King adaptation in that the warmth, uh, you know, Jack Nicholson, his Jack Torrance starts out crazy and gets crazier. And in the book, Jack Torrance is a guy who starts out feeling guilty because he's drinking, he's hurt his young boy, he feels the guilt of being angry enough at his child to want to hurt him, and he is that boiler in the basement that's ready to blow. And this was a very autobiographical book for King, who it's pretty well known that he's a recovering alcoholic, has not drunk in in decades, but at that time he was, at the time he wrote that book. And so those themes were really, really personal to him. And the Kubrick film... King had actually written a draft of The Shining for the Stanley Kubrick film, and Kubrick just tossed it in the wastebasket. Did you know that, Gil? So, just tossed the script? No. That's, yeah. Yeah. Yep. I didn't yeah. know, too, and in doing research about you, is this true that, that part of Kubrick's deal was that King could not publicly criticize the film? Stephen that King? is true. It was a little late, but uh, Kubrick got a million and a half dollars for us to be able to do the miniseries from ABC and and Warner Brothers uh, to not have anything. But part of his deal was, no, Stephen King could no longer say publicly negative things about his movie. Now, did Stephen King ever talk to you? Because he did, I mean, every one of his books practically was made into a movie and usually an awful movie. (laughs) Yeah, I I would say the batting average was not good. Did he talk to you about those movies? Yeah, well, I made a bunch of them, but uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he he said famously said something that makes a lot of sense to me when people say, you know, well, what do you think about people when they fuck up your book with this movie? And he says the book is right here on the shelf, and it hasn't changed. It may be a shitty movie, but my book is right here, and it hasn't been affected in any way. So he learned to be very philosophical about it. Well, the stand is a very good adaptation. And Thank I, you. And I know Thanks. he's I know he's happy with it. Very much so. Yeah. I mean that that's what led to him asking me to do the shining afterwards and, and the many other collaborations we've had. All right, now you listen up. I'm not responsible for you being here or for the dead people in your hometown. Neither is Denninger or the nurses who come in to take your blood pressure. Then who is? No one. 
Everyone. God. Ah, who knows? All you have to do is resign yourself to a few more pokes and pricks. Well, what if I... <laughs> <coughs> Deets, calm down. I was just faking. Why? Why would you do a thing like that? We talk about this thing in here like you were outside of it. I just wanted you to get a little taste of what it's like on the inside. How'd you like it? Is he happy with any of his theatrical release? Movies. I think so. I think there have been. I think I know he loved Misery. Yeah, Misery is good. Uh, Shawshank. Stand by, Stand by Me, Shawshank. Yeah. I mean, uh, there are some great ones. Dolores the Claiborne's Zone. good. Dolores Claiborne, The Dead Zone, yeah. Carrie, the first one was yeah. the one that made his career. Uh, and so there are a bunch of really good Stephen King adaptations out there. It's just that I think there have been close to 60 of them. So the batting average is going to be tough no matter what. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like Sleepwalkers, too. I have to, <laughs> I have to you. tell you. That's the first one that was not based on a, an existing story or, or book. Well, how, how did you guys, we'll, we'll get this out of the way, too, or how did you guys come to start working together? You've collaborated, what, seven, eight times now? Yeah, something like that. Um, the first time was Sleepwalkers, and uh, I was asked to go to a meeting at Columbia Pictures. Um, they were doing the movie, and we had a great meeting, and they said, you know, we, we would love you to do this. We have to take another meeting as a favor to an agent that we work with closely. And so they had that other meeting and gave it to that other director. Um, and so I thought that was the end of it until I got a call that um, the other director wanted to turn it into something entirely different and rewrite King's original screenplay and uh, in ways that nobody was particularly happy with, including a planet of sleepwalkers that he had written into it. And so they asked me to come and have lunch and talk about it. And what I didn't know is that after lunch, they were moving me into my office. So that's how I got the job. Uh, he had seen Psycho 4, which I had directed for Showtime. And both of these have themes of... Uh, mother-son incest, please don't tell my mother. Um, and <laughs> We're going to tell her, and, Mick. <clears throat> oh, God. Well, she's passed away. Oh, so, okay. Uh, yeah. We're safe. But um, he he really liked Psycho 4. It was a movie that no one would expect to like with a number four in the title. And um, so he had director approval, and we started working together from a distance. He was in Maine, and we would talk on the phone. And... Uh, and never really met until he came to Hollywood to shoot. He was there for two hours on the set where we shot his cameo with Clive Barker and Toby Hooper all in this one scene, which the movie would not be affected in any way if I'd cut it out. And but John Landis. Was, and John Landis and Joe Dante. That's right, and Joe. I forgive me for yeah, getting him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also so the only was, movie I've ever seen where someone is stabbed to death with a corn with corn on the cob. Oh, yeah, that's I, right, <laughs> yes. <laughs> we call and, it the cobbing, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good performances. Stephen King, just to make it about me, (laughs) Stephen King wrote an entire page review of my my Shudini commercial. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so if he I, likes something, he'll let people know. Yeah. So I, I felt like that was a legendary moment in my career. <laughs> Stephen King. He wrote about your Shudini commercial. Yes. Does, does, does Mick know what the Shudini is? Maybe you should explain it. Yeah. I, I, I did the voiceover for this. It was one of these infomercials. Uh, now the Shudini, I think it still <laughs> might be on the market. It was basically a shoehorn with a retractable handle. Uh-huh. And they would show at the beginning these old people trying to put on or take off their shoes, and they were all sadly and frighteningly falling to the floor. <laughs> now, now there are some cynics out there might go, well, why didn't they just sit down while putting their shoes on? <laughs> But uh, no, no, the Shudini was there for them. And, uh, <laughs> and so Stephen King felt compelled to write an essay yes, about the he Shudini. he wrote all about <laughs> what we ha- Entertainment Week. We, we have him on record as calling you an American treasure. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, how have I lived my entire life without a Shudini? I don't know. You're missing out, Mick. Well, you got to get so. a little bit older. And the oh, okay. first time you fall down... Tying your shoes, and you'll see the importance. Go to Shudini.com yes. right now. <laughs> I'd like to say, too, that before we start, I'll tell our listeners, we had Drew Friedman here, and Mick uh, uh, revealed that he was a fan of Drew's, and they they, they chatted briefly. And uh, George Zucco <laughs> became, yes. immediately became a part of the conversation. Yeah. The giant claw. Yeah. yeah. We, th- let's tell you what kind of show this is. We did a whole episode. It was a shorter episode, a mini episode. We did the whole thing about George Zucco. <laughs> I think that's worth a mini series, frankly. Yeah. So you, you share our obsessions. Uh, absolutely. And I'm a huge Drew Friedman fan. I mean, I, I remember his, his Tor Johnson cartoons, his Shemp cartoons. Oh, yeah. I'm a huge, huge fan of his work. He's got a new book of portraits out, which is why we had him on the show, and, and he was kind enough to put uh, Gilbert and I in the book. But oh, he, how great. Yeah. And George Zucco, there was later on, I forget who made it, one of those schlock movie makers, and I forget his name now. Uh, the, the, the movie Q. Oh, uh, oh, Larry, Cor- La- oh, Larry, Larry Cohen. Cohen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, yeah. I don't think it was Larry Cohen. We love Larry guy. Cohen. Yeah, Larry yeah. Cohen definitely. But I don't think you. he's worked with George Zuko. No, they're different, no, different eras. But it was Q was the second was like a remake of a oh, George Zuko of the Giant show. Claw. The yes, Giant, oh, the one yes, he just referenced. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Yeah. Quetzalcoatl is what yes, Q stands yes, for. Yeah. Yes. So the Giant Claw. Yeah, which. Um, I believe, well, most of the George Zuko movies were monogram. I'm not sure if oh, that yeah. was. It might have even been sub-monogram. I'm not sure. He was like the poor man's Karloff. Yeah, basically yeah. Boris Karloff. Or even the poor man's Peter Lorre. Yes. So. <laughs> and he, I think he played Moriarty once, didn't he? Oh, I'm not sure. I think you're right. I think I he think did. I'm not yeah. sure which I one. There were did. a lot of them. Do do a little of your Laurie for Mick, since we got a captive a captive audience. No, it was you who abandoned it. You, it's your stupid attempt to buy it. Kevin found out how valuable it was. You idiot! You bloated fathead! <laughs> That's 
perfect. <laughs> I envy your talents. The kids can't get enough Peter Laurie impressions. And I, <laughs> I heard a story that George Zucco, when he was like really old and his health was poor, uh, George Zucco's wife drove him there because he couldn't drive anymore. So George Zucco, this was too sad. She drove George Zucco to um, Ed Wood's Ooh. office to Ooh. ask Ed Wood if he was working on something that he could put George into. Oh, wow. And and at the time, they they didn't have anything they were working on. And, I mean, that, I don't think it, that's one of those tragic Hollywood stories. Incredibly tragic. I mean, I think Ed Wood paid in sandwiches or something. Yo, yeah. 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 Do you know Bob Burns, Mick? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the great Bob Burns. Yeah. We, we had him on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was friends with Ed Wood, and he, he told some very sweet stories. He liked him. Uh, yeah. Liked him a lot, lent him money at the end. It was really heartwarming. Yeah, people who knew him seemed to like him, and Bob used to do every Halloween he would take all of these props from famous horror movies and the like and have a theme night and people would line up to go through his house and look at like uh, a diorama built from the creature from the black lagoon and a guy would be in the original suit and an alien and and all of these things and every year there'd be a line around the block in Bob Burns's Burbank neighborhood oh yeah to go through these things. And, yeah. and he used to put on those heart live horror shows oh yeah yeah oh yeah to yeah. go along with the movie that they were showing and now while Gilbert heads into the nutmeg kitchen to steal more Perrier <laughs> a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Gil and Frank, Gil and Frank, everyone's afraid of Gil and Frank making their podcast from hell. And now back to the show. So how did you become a monster kid in the first place, Mick? You grew up in, in L.A.? Yeah, I was born in L.A., and uh, but none of my friends were monster kids. Uh, I think I think most of the people who are drawn to it in their youth are outcasts. I, I don't think people who who write horror novels, make horror films and the like, were the, the president of the ASB or, or, uh, or class president or prom queen or anything like that. Now, me, on the other hand, I was a football hero, <laughs> and, and I got all the pussy in school. <laughs> Wait a minute. What's that story about when you, were, you knew you were going to be— you, when, uh, when you, yes, The teacher yes. gave you an assignment? The teacher, I think it was like— kindergarten or first grade may have been kindergarten she was playing a game with us where she'd give us initials and we had to think of someone famous with those initials like she'd say mm and then you know mickey mouse or uh bh oh i'm bob hope and and she said os and i'm there and i'm like three years old and and very excitedly, I leapt up and yelled, Angelo Stevens. <laughs> he was the mad doctor, among other things. He was the mad doctor in House of Dracula. 
So you were one of these outcasts. Yes. <laughs> Nobody else knew that? Yeah. You, I was ashamed to be in their presence. I'm trying to prove your outcast theory, Mick. Well, I, yeah, here we go. Um, I don't think most of us were football captains. But, you know, now that horror has become more mainstreamed, I don't know that that's still true. But it certainly was in my youth. What was your local theater? Because we asked Dante, and he had one in New Jersey where um, you'd go to see these things. The Reseda Drive-In, which was uh, my family would go. It's where I saw Psycho when it came out when uh-huh. I was seven years old. And um, Your parents took you to Psycho when you were seven. Yeah, there were four of us, and two of my siblings were younger than me. That explains a lot. (laughs) It does, believe me. And uh, uh, the Peter Bogdanovich Boris Karloff movie Targets was shot at the Reseda. Oh, yes, we love that. So that that was my neighborhood movie house. Also, getting back to like horror fans and outcasts, somewhere along the way, it became very popular for like, you know, gorgeous uh, swimsuit lingerie models to go, oh, well, in school, I was the biggest nerd. (laughs) I don't know when that became Yeah, and you'll you'll see these gorgeous girls like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see her being really unpopular. (laughs) Well, it was before the surgeries. Yeah. (laughs) They're lying through their teeth. Your parents (laughs) took you to Psycho. Yes, it was a very you nurturing uh, family. Yeah, yeah. there were four Garris kids, and uh, there were two younger than me. And we went in the car in the, to the drive-in, and for years after that, we would go to my sister, who was the youngest of all, Mrs. Bates, Mrs. Bates, and then turn around in a chair with a dead face. And, and it was a delight. And then later on, you would work with Anthony Perkins. It was kind of amazing. How weird. To, to do... To direct the fourth Psycho movie, which had a screenplay by Joe Stefano, who wrote the first Psycho movie. Right, right, right. And to work with Tony Perkins. And although we shot it in Orlando, they shipped a lot of the props from the original movie, like the bed that Mother was uh, from Mother's bedroom uh, with the, the dip in the shape of her body. That was shipped out from Hollywood and a lot of the props from the original movie. That bed alone was, was insured for $100,000. And uh, so Perkins, Perkins actually wanted to direct Psycho 4. Uh, and the studio's experience, Psycho 3, was not very successful financially or critically. And so they wouldn't let him do it. So you can imagine how thrilled he was when they said, meet your director. Uh, his last movie was Critters 2. Um, it, I don't think he was really, that gave him a lot of confidence. Oh, so you had you had some issues with him, did you? Uh, well, not because of that, but um, uh, I know he wanted to make the movie. They wouldn't let him, and here is this young guy who had done one feature film before. Right. But uh, John Landis had was a good friend of, of Tony's and spoke on my behalf, and the studio was very enthusiastic because, as you had mentioned earlier, I'd worked for Steven Spielberg on, on, on Amazing Stories, right. and that helped uh, oil the machine a little bit. Did but, he, so did you eventually become kind of like friends or anything? Well, it was it was a complicated shoot, uh, and he had very specific ideas and would get into uh, wordplay battles um, and test me to make sure I wasn't just shooting shots that looked cool, but that there was an actual thought process behind what I was doing 
with the visuals and and with how I would work with the actors and the like. So he he ran me through my paces, but the justification finally came. It was a very short shoot, only four weeks long. But we screened it for him finished at the Alfred Hitchcock Theater at Universal Studios. And it it all worked out great because he loved the movie and went on for like 10 minutes how it was the best of the sequels and better than the one he had done. And it was like embarrassing at, at a certain point. But he, he was he was challenging, but only for the good reasons, only because he cared. This was a, a character he created yeah. and saw through three previous films, had worked with the greatest filmmakers in the world, Orson Welles, Alfred Hitchcock, William Wyler, all of these great people. And here was the guy doing Critters too. So there was a little bit of a, a, a proving ground that had to be maintained. I remember in one of the sequels, it may have been Psycho 2, where, you know, the mother came back, the her corpse, of course, and but it was a different corpse. Mm. Yeah, they had changed the corpse. It wasn't the corpse from the first one. Interesting. Wow. I guess <clears> she well, had, we, had Botox. Yeah. So. <laughs> we had we copied the original one and uh well and Olivia Hussey played mother uh in because it's a flashback and flash. She's very uh, good, by the way. So is Henry Thomas. Yeah, they're such good actors. Both good. And, uh, yeah. They really did a great job. Mm-hmm. And I have the corpse of the one year dead Olivia sitting in my office uh at home. And uh, the people across the street, they had the mother-in-law visiting from Israel. And you can see into the window of my office. And she called the police because there was a dead woman. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> and, and I got to tell you, somebody tweeted me and said to me, I'm a big fan of yours and so is Olivia Hussey. Wow. Ah. Yeah. Because I remember nice. she played Juliet, Romeo and Juliet, didn't she? Absolutely. Right. Yeah. When she yeah. was 15 years old. Yeah. yeah. Is the pseudonym, that the, 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 uh, the name that, that Norman uses when he calls the radio station, it's Ed. It's Ed. Is that a, ref- is is that a reference to who to Norman Ed Bates? Gein. There yes. you go. Okay. Yes. Ed Gein, the famous, famous serial killer. killer. Yeah. yeah. Well, I watched the movie again last night, and that was bugging me. And I said, "Okay, ask Mick." <laughs> yeah, that's it's, a connection. It is indeed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, here, here's two daunting things you've done. I mean, doing the research, and you talk about you know your your naivete when you take on The Shining. You're also taking on Psycho. Well, the good thing about Psycho was that there had been two sequels, and thirty years between the original and mine. And it was being made for Showtime, which at that time was nowhere near as big as HBO then. Mm -hmm. So if it did well, 99% of America wouldn't have seen it and they'd have heard, wow, you should see Psycho 4. Oh, but I can't. And if it sucked, then nobody heard about it. So uh, it was a little easier and more low profile. But the the fact that Joe Stefano wrote the script and that Tony Perkins played the lead and all, uh, I I think helped. And, and, you know, it's a much better movie than people anticipated that it, it would turn out to it's be. Good. And it, it's good. And it is funny. Showtime used to be like the less, like the lesser of all of those premium channels. Definitely. There were kind of only two of them at the time, and there was HBO, and then, oh, yeah, there was Showtime. Yeah. Yeah. And you did a series for Showtime. Tell us about it. Uh, Masters, Masters of, of Horror. Horror. Which yeah, is very that good. Was, Thank you. Um, The whole idea of that was 
just going to a lot of, not all of them were my friends, but most of them were people who were really had high achievements in the horror genre and saying to them, look, um, we don't have a whole lot of money. We don't have a whole lot of time, but you have complete creative control of whatever you want to do for a one hour show. If we can do it in that time and budget, you have complete creative control. You have final cut and everything. And it was something that I think led to a lot of these people from John Carpenter to John Landis to Toby Hooper to uh, just so many Peter, Tom Holland. Peter Medak. Peter Medak, yeah. who did The Change, which is that one movie. of my favorites. Oh, it's ours too. Uh, you know, they were able to escape kind of the straitjacket that they'd been under when they worked for studios and the like. And they really, they blossomed under that 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 freedom and they did some really tremendous work and we were able to do some kind of groundbreaking stuff on that show. You called everybody together for a dinner and this, this, do I have the story right? That was it Stuart Gordon and somebody was celebrating a birthday and this, uh, and the name masters of horror just came out. Basically that's sort of it. Okay. Uh, <clears throat> there, uh, a group of us because we know each other and we're in the genre, we'll meet each other at various film festivals or conventions and things like that. And everybody would always say, you know, we ought to get together for dinner sometime and joke about it. After a couple of years of that, I realized nobody would do that uh, unless I took it on myself. And so I spent about a week trying to get people's schedules together. And we had a dozen filmmakers in the horror genre come together for a dinner in the San Fernando Valley it was me, it was John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, Guillermo del Toro, Stuart Gordon, Don Coscarelli, uh, just a, a dozen really great filmmakers. And at the table next to us was somebody's birthday, and they were singing Happy Birthday, and we joined in. And at the end, Guillermo del Toro stood up and said, The Masters of Horror wish you a very happy birthday. And <laughs> I love it. That was that was the birth of the, our, our name. I had the itself. wrong director, but I have seen the pictures online. <laughs> there are photographs there. of you guys all sitting there we, at the tables. It's a very impressive gathering. It, that started about uh, probably close to 15 years ago, and we just had one a week and a half, two weeks ago, to celebrate uh, Toby Hooper, who was a very close friend and, and just a great guy. And we hadn't been together uh, for two years. We hadn't had a dinner, and the last one before that was to to celebrate, to raise a glass to Wes Craven, who was also a member of this small fraternity. Yeah, yeah. great I, I remember the reason I eventually went to Toby Hooper's house is because he directed Life Force. Oh, you like that movie. You've yeah. talked well, about. what I liked about it was Matilda May oh, was man. a girl <laughs> space vampire, and she was naked through the whole movie. And so I had to go... So he <laughs> I he invited me to his house and he had a big screen and yep. he put on life force. Oh. And, and I and I whacked it that night later on. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of young men achieve maturation <laughs> yes. with life force. She and looked Matilda amazing May. in that. Holy cow. Yeah. At what point does he spring for lunch? <laughs> uh, that was, I think, it was the same evening. Okay, he sprung for lunch. What a guy! So I got and you sprung. Otherwise. I got dinner and sex out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Better than any of my dates with women. <laughs> so, Masters of Horror was kind of a dream project, Mick. 
for you? It was. I mean, you know, working with Stephen King obviously is like one of the greatest opportunities in, uh, in the world. But to do this and to not only be able to do something I wanted without interference, but to grant these great filmmakers the opportunity to tell stories they wanted to tell the way they wanted to tell them was amazing. We did it for two years. We made 26 episodes, and and I'm so proud of every one of them, and, and, and I think all of them really felt like they got a chance to flex muscles that they had not in quite a while. And, and when did you first become a Lon Chaney Jr. fan? Well, I actually, uh, when I saw The Wolfman, you know, probably the same way you did late at night on the local TV channel, uh, for me, it was Channel 5 uh, in L.A. Uh-huh. For you, it might have been Channel 9. Or, yeah, I think uh, Channel 9 had universal. And my grandmother actually was, she was a seamstress here, and she made dresses for Gale Storm and people like that. But, you know, the only kind of affiliation in the show business that the rest of my family never was exposed to. But she had a picture that is on my wall now that um, she was – friendly with Lon Chaney Jr.'s housekeeper when he was Creighton Chaney. So I have an autographed picture to this woman from Creighton T. Chaney. Wow. Wow. Yeah, so I have that. And Joe Dante actually used it in the howling in one of the scenes. That oh, this, this, that, oh, that keeps, scene yes. on the desk. We would just, yeah. I, I just mentioned that on that's the show. My, that's my picture. That's what well, that whole movie puts in all those in jokes, all those werewolf yeah. in jokes. I that's when she's talking to uh, Robert Picardo, right? And on the right. desk, there's a Cheney photo. That's the one, yeah. And, and give I you a thought, piece of my mind, yeah. And I was, uh, and and that's also this great line: "You know me, but I don't know you." Why? Oh no, that's when he's talking to the guy. You know me, but I don't know you. Why is that, bright boy? <laughs> and yeah, I I have an I I uh, through famous monsters, oh, I yeah. found that Lon Chaney Jr. was wasn't feeling well, and they gave an address you could send him a get well note, and I, and I sent him a get well card. And I got back a little photo of the Wolfman, signed Lon Chaney. Wow. Yeah, I still wow, have it. Amazing. I've got it framed on my wall. Wow, I, I remember Famous Monsters very well. They had a Master Monster Maker contest with the Aurora Monster Models when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> we were just talking I about won, that with Drew. I won a plaque that was on my wall for, for doing a customized version of The Mummy. Uh, I <laughs> I think I was the only person at the Woolworths in my neighborhood who submitted anything. So um, wow, the, the competition was not steep. But, yeah, I was a big, big famous Monsters guy and got to New Forey Ackerman pretty well and went to the Acker Mansion several times, which I'm sure you, you must have done, Gil. I've, I've, I was there twice. Mm. Uh, second time he wasn't well yeah. at all. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I remember he took me on a tour. And I saw like the they were they were all like rotted and everything, yeah. and you can see the insides. But the dinosaurs from King Kong, yeah, yeah, and Willis and, O'Brien stuff. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And uh, Bob Burns used to watch him work. I guess you know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, Bob and uh, and his gorilla suit. Uh, oh yeah, ever working in the day. Oh yes. What was it, Kogar? <laughs> Kogar. <laughs> we love we love Bob. Such a sweet man. Very. And nice I've guy. never been to Bob's house. I have to oh, make you a have trip to. there when you get out You've, there. Yeah, you must come out and uh, and visit Casa Burns. What happened to the Acker Mansion stuff? I mean, did Bob did Bob take most of it? Is it did it go into the well, museum, a, a museum? Uh, I should it, say? it went into a collection. I think that there was a private auction, or there is going to be. I think I think there was a, a big auction that sold off a lot of the stuff. Um, I know my friend Bill Malone, who did uh, the remake of House on Haunted Hill, was one of the masters of horror. He did Fear dot com. Mm-hmm. He owned Robbie the Robot. And his car, and he still does, and a lot of uh, set pieces from Alien and Star Wars and all of these things. And he he loaned them out to Bob Burns for those Halloween shows. But I know, speaking of all this great stuff going out to auction, his Robbie the Robot is about to go out to auction through TCM. Uh, and so, But I would go over to Bill's house often and uh, be able to see that it was in perfect shape, too. He would do personal appearances in it and do TV spots in the original Robbie costume and all of that, and then became a director himself and and kept it. And I imagine it will keep him through his dotage once that's sold. How nice. And and I think, though, a that's lot cool. of people, especially toward the end, were stealing stuff yeah, from I'm the Acker Mansion. True. I'm afraid that's true, yeah. Uh, Forey, the last few years of his life, was pretty much restricted to a wheelchair and and uh, uh, oxygen tanks things like that and and you know people did take advantage of his uh, of his frailness and his collection because he was not very protective he was always quite welcoming to people to come and and look at all these great pieces of cinema history he wasn't so public with his porno- pornography collection that was in a back room. <laughs> but he did Fantastic. have one. <laughs> now, I heard, and I may have even seen the letter, there was one letter kept from some woman who Fari Ackerman sent a, a dirty letter to. Oh, and it, oh, I don't know about it. It was written in the style of Famous Monsters, like famous oh, monsters, you, you know would too have, much. Yes, <laughs> famous monsters would have a picture of the wolf mango. Oh, he's wolfing down his food, or <laughs> or he's a real mummy's boy, <laughs> or Dracula is going a little batty. You know that that kind of. Or oh yeah, the har- horror would Carlofonia was a popular. <laughs> yeah, so. I heard he had, I, I, man, I may have seen this. He wrote a letter to some girl that he was trying to get in her pants. And it was like, uh, let's keep abreast of the situation. <laughs> I'm sure it got him all the way to home base, right? Yeah. There is no other podcast in the world, Mick, talking about Forrest Ackerman's sexual peccadillos. <laughs> Better peccadillos than armadillos. Right, that's know. right. Let's not blow this. <laughs> tell us about, which, you know, we jump, we jump around like crazy. But tell us yeah, about, good. I wrote down the names of some of the people you worked with. I mean, Ray Walston in The Stand. 
yeah. who we yeah. love. I mean, part oh, yeah. part of part of the love of this show is we love to talk about great character actors. You well, know. Ray was terrific. He he was also very eccentric, and uh, it was very bright and sunny in the locations where we were much of the time. And Ray would wear glasses that he had put black tape over. So because he felt that his eyes had suffered too much from stage lights from his Broadway and, and stage work back in the earlier days of his career. So he would walk around with these blind man glasses that were taped over and be relaxing this way. <laughs> and he would get really cranky. I, I, re, I do remember reading when I was a little boy in TV Guide about Ray Walston being attap, uh, attacked by a chimpanzee on My Favorite Martian. Wow. And, maul, and mauling his face. Ooh. And, I, and that memory stuck with me, so I asked him about it. And he said, that little motherfucker. I <laughs> <laughs> was talking great. about this wicked chimp. But <laughs> great. He, would get, he would get cranky sometimes, and, you know, uh, I, would, I would bust him on it. Uh, he, I'd say, boy, somebody got up on the wrong side of the bed today. And he'd go, oh, 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 and it would bring him back to earth. Uh, but he, he was really wonderful. He studied he knew everybody's lines in this thing oh, not just his pro. own old pro but yeah there are very few people of his age at that time who would not only know their own lines but you know somebody would be saying something that was meant to cue him in and he'd chastise them for getting it wrong because it was his cue so he knew everybody's lines in the scene but he he was fantastic and really it just such a one of a kind, you know, Uncle Martin, but uh, oh, yeah. playing a cranky old man. Amy Heckerling really told fun. us he was a little eccentric, too. For fast times at Ridgemont High, she worked with him. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mr. Hand. Yeah. 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 Chimps are horrible animals. <laughs> I've heard <laughs> sure so he would have many agreed. stories <laughs> about that. I, I would rather get thrown in a lion's cage than a cage of chimps. <laughs> hmm. Chimps, they look cute on TV. I think, but, I think Danny Bonaducci told us a chimp attacked him, not really? on the Partridge family, on another show where he was working as a child actor, Patty Duke, or I'll, I'll check, wow. so one, of, one of these wow. shows, and he had a bad experience with a chimp. They're horrible creatures. It bit him. <laughs> <laughs> what about William Shallert? Somebody we tried hard oh, to get on. Oh, my to, God, We tried yes. so hard to yeah. get him on this show, and it, went, it just dragged out for weeks, and we, he wound up passing. Well, yeah, he was 90 years old when he did Bag of Bones with us. And, uh, you know, I was a fan of his from childhood. Of course. Uh, you know, uh, from the Patty Duke show and everything. Um, but he was such a pro, but he got very embarrassed because he was at a stage in his life where he was starting to forget lines. Oh. And at 90 years old, that's very yeah. excusable. Of course. Um, but, uh, you know, I offered to you know, put cue cards up, something like that. And he wouldn't have it. He was too much of a pro and he was uh, too embarrassed to do that. But I told him, you know, you're a great actor. We love your face. We love your delivery and everything. If you don't mind, I will just feed you lines. I won't give any performance into it just so you have the words. And then, you know, Bill Shower does this through his performance. And at first he resisted it. And, um, you know, but he got really angry with himself because he had such high standards for his oh. work. And uh, so everybody was really encouraging. Pierce Brosnan was the star of the movie, and he worked with him as well. Mm -hmm. And it was just everybody was so great on that, and he was 
fantastic. And finally, it relaxed him to be able to hear what the lines were and to just then perform them and not, you know, not have them fed as a line reading, but just what the words were. And he was fantastic. And once you edit it together, there are scenes that you look at it and, I mean, you see why he had a career from the 1940s into the 2000s. He did everything. Everything. He, I mean, go he, back to those Twilight Zone episodes, but he worked constantly. Yeah. And he was equally yeah. good in both uh, light comedy and drama. Absolutely. And he played a villain in Bag of Bones, and he played it so well. I mean, he was uh, he was uh, really nasty. And he has a suicide, an assisted suicide in a bathtub in Bag of Bones that was really difficult to do because it's a bag over his head and he's breathing in and here's this frail 90-year-old man in a bathtub set. And uh, it it was really difficult to watch. And it was only, uh, I think, um, a year or two after we made the movie that he did pass away. Yeah, we tried like hell to get him here. And, and Such a great actor. Another name that I have to mention, and when, back in the days when you were doing your, your interviews for the Z Channel in L.A., uh-huh. and I found them. I'm so glad you, you preserved them. I know they were on, what, Beta all these years? Yeah, they were Betamax recordings. Wow. Yeah. They're so good. I mean, there's William Fred. Uh, Mick did interviews. Were you, were you, you're in your 20s? Yeah, yeah. He, I, he, was, I was a kid. William Friedkin and Jackie Cooper and a, and a very young Spielberg wow. uh, after after Close Encounters. But also, yeah. and I didn't yeah. find this one online. Did you interview Christopher Lee? I did, but I don't have any tapes of it. Those were recorded off of the cable uh, just on my home Betamax machine uh, because I didn't have access to the masters and they were destroyed once the uh, channel was sold. It became part of Time Warner, which is now Spectrum. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, I did Christopher Lee. And uh, um, William Shatner, and you know, it was it was really exciting. We basically showed films on the Z Channel, which was the first pay TV channel in LA, and I would interview uh, people who had done the films, the genre films on the Fantasy Film Festival. So we had Spielberg talk about Close Encounters. We had Christopher Lee on with The Wicker Man. We had oh. William Shatner with a Star Trek movie. So great, and it was it, it was I mean thrilling. For me. Oh, yeah, Douglas uh, Trumbull, you had Harlan Ellison, I mean. Yeah, yeah, it was really quite a learning experience for me. And, uh, you know, hopefully the, that's why I do the podcast now, because I still want to be evolving and learning from all of these great, the wisdom of the people I admire. Well, I was touched by something that you said that, that here you are, you're a kid, you're in your 20s, but you're meeting these people, and you, you, you had a realization that, you know, these aren't giants, they're just people like me who love movies. Yeah, they're regular yet, folks. <laughs> they're regular folks who are supremely talented. Right. And, you know, we're able to to help create the language of of the films that we love so much and, and filmmaking. You know, you talk to Toby Hooper about the making of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you learn a lot about what are standard techniques today that he kind of invented in his day, or Wes Craven about Nightmare on Elm Street, or or William Friedkin about The Exorcist. And, you know, he he was very upset. We actually couldn't run the Friedkin interview back then because I also interviewed the director, John Borman, of Exorcist Two, which Friedkin kept referring to as the hairy tick. And he was so... <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that he hates that sequel. He hates it, and he called us horrible for running it, and he was... 
uh, uh, potentially libelous about it. Wow. And so Z Channel, Z Channel would not air the show, and he would not agree for it to be edited. So um, it never it never showed up anywhere until I put it on the interview website. Yeah. And uh, so that's kind of the only place uh, it's ever been, is it? MickGarrisInterviews.com. The Exorcist is one of those films that it seems like there were a hundred sequels to The Exorcist, yeah. and each one worse than the other. <laughs> and a lot of them weren't official Exorcist sequels. Yes. Oh, yeah. Didn't, <laughs> yeah. didn't Blatty make one himself later, later, later on? Blatty did the third one. Yeah, the yeah, third Exorcist one. Exorcist 3, which has had gone through a lot of reevaluation lately. A lot of people really admire the movie, and I think it's pretty good myself. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, boy, I, I, didn't you have him on post-mortem, uh, Friedkin, again, recently? Friedkin was, yeah. But you didn't he bring it up. You didn't make the mistake of bringing it up again, did you? I did bring it up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's history. It was, uh, you know, 30 years later. So, um, yeah, and Friedkin is a great interview because he doesn't hold back. There's no reason for him not to be completely open because what's anybody going to do to him? So, of course. Uh, I don't know if you've had him on the show or not, but he's really great. We want to. I think you'd really love. We, we want to. But what's we the rush? We lo- listen. I love Sorcerer <laughs> to death. That's it's one a, of my favorite movies. Me too. Ever. Me too. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a remake, but it's a damn good one. That was with yeah. Roy Scheider. Yeah, it's a remake of yeah. Wages of Fear, yes. but it's fan- it's friggin' yeah. fantastic. I like the night they raided Minsky's. I like all his pictures. Yeah, I, he's. Uh, have you seen Bug? I mean, that was the I first time I saw that. Michael Shannon, and uh, it's a great film. Tell us, uh, now I was told by our mutual friend, Sean Marrick, who set up this interview, uh-huh. and we yes. thank Sean, and we will also plug uh, your podcast again before we, we, we wrap, <laughs> but, but Sean sent me an email and said, you got to ask Mick the Betty Davis story. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> it's not all that good a story. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, I was, when I was working for Star Wars, my first job was answering sto- uh, phones for the original Star Wars. And I was the receptionist. But I also operated R2-D2 at the Oscars that year. I love The that. only time in my life I ever have been or will be at the Oscars. Um, so I was operating the R2-D2 robot, and I'm back in the green room while the show is going on as Jack Nicholson is leering at the transparent wardrobe that Olivia Newton-John was wearing. <laughs> And uh, good stuff. <laughs> so I'm just watching all of this magic Hollywood taking place around me in a very transformative time of old and new Hollywood. So this is 1978. And in the back room, like I said, Jack Nicholson, there was Betty Davis, there were all these stars from different generations. And I was in the green room with all of these, surrounded by all these people in my tuxedo and my remote control for the R2-D2 robot when they announced the best actress and it was Diane Keaton for oh, Annie, Annie Hall. Hall. Yeah. And Betty Davis was a guest. She said, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. That's the story. <laughs> Why was she so pissed off about it? about Annie Hall winning? Well, I guess, you know, it was not so much a performance as, just a real-life kind of uh, uh, actor's role. Oh. It, it didn't feel active. Oh, I see. She came from a very uh, gilded period of Hollywood. Of course. When, you know, a best actress is somebody who does something big and something grand and something yeah, Mildred you know, Pierce. remarkable. 
and yeah, Mildred yeah. Pierce, right. for example. Right. Uh, and and this was so grounded in this, you know, very kind of modern and sloppy clothes and and something other than the Hollywood machine. Did you operate R2-D2? I think we may have a connection to another one oh. of our podcast guests. Did you operate R2-D2 in the, in the infamous Star Wars holiday special? I did. Oh, geez. <laughs> we had Steve Binder here on the show. Oh, wow. wow. Okay. <laughs> I am the Zelig of horror. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's a quite a claim. Wow. That's a very cool thing. <laughs> I was there, yes, and I saw that, uh, shall I call it a masterpiece? Uh, <laughs> it's a, well, I'll tell you, <laughs> it's something. You yeah, were, that, we, what a thing to be on the set for. I know. You know, when you've got R2-D2 and B. Arthur in the same scene. <laughs> <talked>. Ouch! <laughs> I mean, Steve has a sense of humor about it, you know? Well, you but have to. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, get, getting back to our favorite actor, Great, I, think the, uh, I, I think the earliest horror film I remember watching is The Indestructible Man. Oh, yeah. With Lon Chaney Jr. And we were talking about this recently. Also, Robert Shane, who was the inspector from Superman, and mm-hmm. Joe Flynn from McHale's Navy. Oh, from Navy. McHale's Navy. Wow. They yeah, were the sure. two mad scientists. Wow. Yeah, I haven't seen that one since I was a kid. But the indestructible man and man-made monster. Yeah. Oh, yes, yes. What did Ron Chaney tell us? You know, you must know this, Mick. That the the story about him being he he dying at birth or or or, or no, I don't know, and being plunged into the ice. Yeah, oh they God. they said he was born dead, and that oh his God. father grabbed him and ran to the lake in Colorado, there where it's freezing ice, and he breaks through the ice and dips his son in to shock him into life. Oh, and it worked, obviously. Yeah, Ron Chaney. Wow. Ron Chaney told us this. But they uh, a lot of I, I've also read that Lon Chaney Jr. could be when he wasn't drunk, also full of shit, and he would make <laughs> up stories. So I've heard that too. And Rick Baker, the famous makeup artist, and and other friends of his who did that kind of work back when they were kids in Hollywood, they would uh, spot him on a street corner. And want his autograph, and he'd ask them for money for drinks and stuff. Um, oh, and, my God. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know if I, – I doubt that Ron talked about this at all, and I don't know Ron, but it was quite well known that um, he was one of the best-hung actors in Hollywood. So Lon Chaney Jr.? Oh, stop the presses. Yes. Oh, yep, this yep. is a stop the presses. Nick, you just became his favorite guest. Wow. <laughs> Out of wow. 170. Yeah. So yeah. add it along to, of course, Milton Berle, the king. <laughs> That's right. Horace Tucker, Guy Marks. Yep. Guy Marks, the comedian. Uh, ah, okay, is, yeah. Is, is, and someone, and just our previous guest, told us Willem Dafoe. Willem Dafoe. I don't uh, know. Yeah, I don't That's know. here. Well, but he's done nude scenes, so yeah. we'll see. We'll yeah, you can Lon Chaney Jr.? Yep. Wow. Where did you come up yep. with this? This is good stuff. Who told, this who told was, you? I heard this from, maybe I shouldn't credit to these people, but I <laughs> mentioned 
people who were makeup artists in the industry who who learned these things about him. I don't know how they learned. Wow, them. Gilberts, you, this has made your year. This is a but, great. This is a great story. Schlong <laughs> Cheney. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they called him. <laughs> no. Schlong <laughs> Cheney. Gilbert's so, so happy. But they they'd ask him for his autograph and he'd ask him for money for booze. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, to walk him over to a bar and, and things like that. I mean, it, yeah. it's sad. It is sad. Because, and, you know, he did have, he was always in the shadow of his father. And he was so proud of creating his own makeup in 1940 for 1 million BC. But, um, you know. They wouldn't he, allow it because he wasn't an official makeup man. Exactly. And, and he was not talented and gifted in the same way that his father was, who kind of created how all of this stuff was done. And he never really, other than Of Mice and Men, and there are a couple other examples of opportunities to play really tender, sensitive, high-level roles, he was always consigned to the B pictures. And, you know, his name was Creighton Cheney, not Lon Cheney Jr., but the studio forced that on him because of... It would sell more tickets. It would make him famous. You know, he gives a and, very good performance out of Mice and Men. Uh, an you know, amazing he's great. performance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gilbert, that, was, that was his greatest. Yeah, yeah. Well, you think of him from Lenny. horror films. Yeah. I mean, you know, you think of him from cheesy horror films, but he really gave a great performance. And his one scene in High Noon. Was, oh yes, he's oh, in High yeah. Noon too. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But now he he had the ability. Uh, just the opportunities that were given to him were. Uh, like I say, the genre has always been thought of as kind of a gutter genre and, and not given much respect by the studios, and he certainly suffered from that. And he was in, there was a TV uh, show, I think it was called Telephone Line, hmm. and uh, there was an episode called The Golden Junk Man. Uh, oh, Bob Burns uh, told us yes, about this. Yes, and I, I saw that. Someone sent it to me, and he plays like a, Greek junk man, and it was similar to later on Rodney Dangerfield doing Back to School, right, where he right. goes to the same college as his sons, and <laughs> and he plays like a Greek junk man whose sons are embarrassed by him, and he goes to their college to prove that he can graduate. And Ooh. it's really a fine performance. Well, Bob Burns told us when he met him, he singled out that performance, and he said Cheney was so moved that he got up out of the chair and he came over to Bob and he wrapped around his arms around him and he hugged him. Yeah, he wow. said Cheney had so tears, dumb. got tears in his eyes, how and great. hugged him. Yeah, I mean, how great to to be in a position where your your career is not what it used to be, and to have someone recall something that not many people were familiar with and to to tell him how how great he was in it i i bet that was really an important time of his life to I'm hear i'm sure like and that. especially sure. like respected stuff he's done yeah yeah let's talk a little bit about amazing stories sure mick and and how steven spielberg was the first person to basically hire you as a writer yeah what i learned many years later that i was the first writer hired for amazing stories um Stephen was one of my guests on the Z Channel show. Right. And he really enjoyed uh, doing it. He said with quite a bit of surprise afterwards, I really had fun doing this. And that's not something he normally had when he was doing publicity interviews and things. So our, our paths crossed later when I was doing specialized publicity at Universal for E.T. 
and The Thing, and, you know, it was 1982, which was a, an amazing year for the genre. American Werewolf in London had just come out in 81. And so I hired myself to do making of documentaries on a lot of these films. Oh, yeah, you did one po- for The Fog, too, right? <clears throat> yeah, for The yeah. Fog, for yeah. The, the, yeah, lots of those things. And um, I was doing the making of uh, The Goonies on the first day of shooting up in Astoria, Oregon, and we're setting up the lights to interview Stephen about it. And he said, oh, you must do a lot of these things these days. Uh, and I had not been doing many uh, because I was trying to put full time into becoming a screenwriter. And I told him, you know, I'm, I don't know how I managed to tell him this because I was very shy about being one of those assholes with a script in their back pocket. <laughs> yeah. But um, – Told him that, you know, I uh, uh, was trying to make a go of it as a writer. And that uh, he said, oh, I didn't know you were a writer. Uh, Yeah, what kind of stuff do you do? And we just talked about it. And coincidentally, my agents at the time had sent a spec script of mine to them because of amazing stories. And when he got home from this trip, apparently the the coverage was incredibly good. And I, I it was. I got a copy of it. Uh, well after the fact, and the last three words were hire this man. And so because he knew me and through this other way of doing it, through publicity and through doing interviews with him, um, he uh, he read this coverage, read the script, and they called me up and asked me if I would come in and meet with them and write one of the episodes. He gave all the storylines for the first 22 episodes and so I went home, wrote one uh, in three days, took it back, and uh, called me a, ha- a day and a half into doing another one and asked me if I would go on staff as as the the story editor or the Rob Petrie of Amazing Stories. How nice. <laughs> so it was an opportunity that I literally I was on food stamps at the time. And then I went from food stamps to Spielberg and other studios and, and networks and executives who had never read anything of mine just left it on the slush pile they still didn't read anything but they were offering me jobs because i'd been knighted by king stephen so. wow from from food stamps to uh, uh the first staff writer hired on amazing stories on a, on a new yeah. network project yeah by the most successful filmmaker of all time and, yeah and what's steven spielberg like to work with thrilling you know he loves the work he loves making movies and you know, incredibly supportive. Um, you know, being on the set and watching him work was an astonishing experience. And, you know, he wanted to make sure when he offered me my opportunity to to direct an episode that uh, he had me storyboard the whole half-hour show and go over it with him. And the greatest film school I ever had was two hours in Stephen's office going over the storyboards oh, that we'd had prepared. Boy. Fantastic. So, that was four years of film school in two hours and just an amazing experience and incredibly encouraging. And I had scripts I wrote directed by Martin Scorsese, Robert Zemeckis, all these different people. And it it just, it, it, my life changed completely from then until now. I've been able to make a living doing what I love since that time. You got to see them work too. You got to see, I, I know that I read an interview with you and you're talking about watching Scorsese's process. When he Pretty was incredible. Yeah. yeah one one thing I... Yeah. Go ahead. No, what Scorsese liked? Uh, Very... He clears the set, so you don't get to watch too close. But 
Uh, no one is around while he's working, uh, at least on this Amazing Stories episode. Nobody is around while he's working with the actors. Then he calls in the cameraman, and they work things out together. And then everybody comes in and watches. So what I realized, what I learned right off the bat, is how much of directing takes place off the set. You know, how much is in the, the planning, in the casting, in the talking with, with the writer, in discussions with your cameraman, all of the plans that are made before you actually come to the set. And I realized in some cases, like with Alfred Hitchcock, he was bored by the time he got to the set because he'd already shot the movie on paper and in his head. So I, I see how different... The great thing about that was an anthology series, which is something I've now got quite a lot of experience in, and seeing how different filmmakers would approach th- their different techniques. You know, they directors don't work together, so they don't necessarily... If you're working on an anthology that doesn't have a theme like Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, they they were the- thematically uh, pretty much, you'd look at a Twilight Zone, you'd know it was a Twilight Zone. But with Amazing Stories, they were very broadly defined, and they were the first of the director-driven shows. So you'd get Martin Scorsese, and you'd encourage him to do Martin Scorsese's filmmaking. You'd get Robert Zemeckis, and you'd get him making his kind of movie. And Joe Dante doing his. I was lucky enough to have written one of the two Joe directors. And um, it was the best film school ever. And, and Scorsese was a very serious guy. And I remember I'd written a chase scene in a parking lot into this episode. And he said to, to Stephen and me, you know, I'm not really good at chase scenes. Could we cut this? It was a revelation to me, the master of cinema <laughs> telling me, I'm not very good yeah. at chase scenes. What? You mean there's something you're not good at? Not so I would know, you know? Yeah, I, lo- I love that show. I mean, and. and- the diversity of that show. I mean, you could have something like Family Dog, Brad Bird's. Yeah, yeah. You could have something in animation and a children's one and a thriller like the one you did. Um, uh, oh, uh, Amazing the, Fallsworth. The Amazing Fallsworth with Gregory Hines, yeah. which is great. And they had one where, <laughs> getting back to famous big penises. <laughs> uh, Mil- <laughs> which you're always going to do. Of yes. course. Milton Berle popped up. <laughs> oh, he did. That's right. Where it has Milton, to do Mr. Magic. These, Mr. Yeah. Magic. These these aliens, they're in love with all the old forgotten performers. Right. That's was Sid Caesar was Mr. Magic. But that one was, yeah, I forget the title of that one. But, yeah, they they loved old TV shows because it took years for the signal to get to their planet. And so when they came to Earth, they sought out the, the, the TV stars of the 1950s. And Uncle Milty was one of them. And they, they take them at the end on a flying saucer to their planet where they'll be big stars again. Exactly. Yeah, I like that show, Gilbert. I didn't know you watched it. Oh, Amazing yeah. stories. And, and, and the other one, the, the Life on Death Row ah. that you directed, also very good. That's the one I was te- – thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's the one I was telling you about where we went over the storyboards and everything. So it was in the second season, and I had d- – directed one thing before for television. It was a Disney Sunday movie called Fuzzbucket. And it showed me how little I knew about directing. Um, And so I feel like Life on Death Row is the first thing I truly directed where I came at it, where I I think I understood a little more the vocabulary of film and, and the tools with which you make a film. Why? 
Why me? Why now? Well, I don't have an answer for that one. I mean, this, this, this power belongs with someone on the outside, not somebody in here waiting to die. You know, maybe, maybe you're not supposed to go around healing the whole world. Just help as many as you can. What, these guys? You saw the look on Johnny's face when you touched him. When you took away the pain. Yeah, and what good is it gonna do him? Do as much as you can for the others in the time you have. Just take away the pain. Peterson, Warden wants to see you. It's very good. Patrick Swayze is a prisoner, and he's trying to escape, and he's on the fence, and it's hit by lightning, and he develops the power to heal in his oh. hands, and Hector Elizondo is very yeah. good. It's very Thank good. You. I'll, I'll yeah, show it I'm to very you. proud of him. I'll show it's it to Gilbert. Lot. Now, yeah. Also, yeah. when we had Ileana Douglas on the show, she told me something that kind of, I it was kind of sad in a way, you know, not in a major way, but she said that directors, uh, there's no friendship between like Spielberg and Scorsese. They'll be like a and polite, yeah, and yeah. Coppola. Yeah. They'll be like hmm. kind of a politeness between them but it's all like they know each other's competition and and they don't actually like each other <laughs> well i don't know about that but in the 1970s i know spielberg and lucas and de palma and and others of uh, their their generation were very good friends and they would look at each other's films and make suggestions for their cuts and things like that um and I imagine the ivory tower that comes with huge success is an isolating factor. I, I, I'm sure that it stands between close friendships. Living down in the gutter where I live in the genre, um, you know, the masters of horror, it's, it's very different. Everybody's very supportive of one another. When we have a dinner and there's 25 of us together in a, in a restaurant, if somebody's got a movie coming out, everybody is really gung-ho for it. They're going to go pay their... $12 and see the film and be supportive and wish everyone the best. And, you know, when you are the underdog, you're on a team together. But when you are at the top of the game, I think it's it's very much the Citizen Kane syndrome. Possibly. Yeah, I think she said they were friendly, but 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 in some sense, the, their competition kind of mm. do, kind of dominated the relationships. De Palma, too. Yeah. She said was uh, that they, they, they just they were all very aware of of each other's successes. Interesting. Yeah. yeah I mean, just I, what she observed. I did not notice that. Like they were I didn't respectful of each other, but. Yeah, I, I'm sure that's true. But, you know, all I ever saw was in the case of Amazing Stories, Stephen and, and uh, Scorsese were very friendly toward one another. And it was like they don't get to see each other much. And here was an opportunity for them to intersect. And they really seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. So you were a huge fan of the anthology format. You worked with Tales of the Crypt. You worked. You yeah. had your own two two different anthology series, also amazing stories. And do I have this I've right? Just, you have something coming. Uh, yeah, we just finished shooting, and we're in post production now on something called Nightmare Cinema, which is um, when I finished with Masters of Horror. My dream was to do an anthology where every episode was shot in a different country with a director from that country, and. That's what Nightmare Cinema was originally intended to be. I realized that no one else was am as ambitious as I was in that regard. 
So I thought maybe a series of feature films under the Nightmare Cinema umbrella where we could do it that way. And in 10 years of developing this idea, it finally has come down to we got the opportunity to make a feature film. So five directors, five stories with a wraparound sequence. So Joe Dante and I and a Cuban director named Alejandro Brugues, who did Juan of the Dead, which if you haven't seen it, is brilliant. Juan of the Dead. Okay. Yes, it's great. Love the title. Um, and David Slade, who did the, ti- the uh, pilots for Hannibal and American Gods. He did 30 Days of Night. He did Hard Candy. Brilliant British director. Uh, he he did an episode in it. And um, uh, Ryuhei Kitamura, the Japanese director who did... Um, uh, Midnight Meat Train, the Clive Barker movie, and Versus and other Japanese films that are very well known in the genre. The five of us got together. Each of us did a story. I did the wraparound section with Mickey Rourke. And uh, we, the movie will be out uh, early next year. A couple of companies got together. A company called Good Deed Entertainment financed the development of the script. And one of the writers is from Mexico, Sandra Becerril, who's a it's her first script in English. Richard Christian Matheson was one of the writers. Oh, the filmmakers wow. wrote themselves. Really a great group of people, and um, hopefully it will launch a series. And Nightmare it was Cinema. Yeah, yeah Cinelu, uh, which is uh, a production company formed by Mark Canton, who used to run Warner Brothers and then Columbia, and uh, Courtney Solomon, who uh, had After Dark Films. They've collaborated in a company called Cinelu, and they financed the movie and... Uh, um, you know, they they became our angel after 10 years of trying to put this together. And the hope is that it will not only be a feature film with possible sequels, but to be able to finally do that anthology of international filmmakers. It's great. You know, they, they used to do those feature anthologies. You don't see them much. No. I mean, Creepshow was the last major one I could think of. I would, Reinhouse, I they've guess. They've done about 500 times tried to bring back Twilight Zone. Yeah. And it never works. Well, they don't have Rod Serling. Yeah. yeah. It, it, yeah. it was one man's distinctive vision. That it, Just like, um, you know, Outer Limits uh, was, uh, was one man's vision, too. Same um, thing. Yeah. And Twilight Zone, I, you know, maybe it's just not been the right marriage. Uh, or maybe it's just not the right time. Because it, always, it was always a morality tale. What's, and, what's your favorite yeah. Twilight Zone episode, Mick? Do, have you been uh, Well, Can you pick maybe, one? Maybe To Serve Man. It's That's great. One of my it's favorites. a great one. Yeah. My, my yeah. favorite is, I think it's called Walking Distance with Gig Young. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. a great one, too. Yeah. Were you a fan yeah. of, of, um, of Night Gallery, speaking of Serling and that format? I was. You know, I was still young enough to not be able to discern that it wasn't as good as Twilight Zone. Right. You know, Night and- Gallery, to me, and and I, there was one station that brought it back, and I think they still show it. Yeah, it's on. And I remember hmm. even back then, I was disappointed in it. Yeah. But now, even worse than ever, it seems <laughs> like you could show Night Gallery and say, this is everything wrong with TV of the 70s. Mm. Well, it's interesting because, you know, Serling was just a hired hand on that. He didn't write any of them. He didn't do anything. His introductions were all written for him. He was basically an actor on that show. So he was not the driving creative force behind Night Gallery the way he was 
uh, on Twilight Zone. And, you know, I started doing interviews in high school. And my first two interviews I ever did were Ray Bradbury and Rod Serling. Wow. And it was really kind of, a, again, a great education. The reason I, I still like doing interviews is is my quest for knowledge about, you know, how to get better at what I do. And just because I love learning, as you do, about the things that you love so much, this and this world of the outre cinema. We love it. Be, You're one of us, Mick. <laughs> Google gobble. And, and, and you... Um, are you a fan of what I like and other people in the cinema world like to call guinea horror films? <laughs> he, guinea he, horror. He mocks me because I'm Italian, Mick. That's what that's, uh, that, that's what this is oh, about. He's there, talking about <laughs> Dario Argento. Like, not, nothing that high class. Nothing before. as high class oh. as Argento. Uh, oh. Dr. Butcher, medical deviant. <laughs> yeah. Catch oh, them yeah. and kill them. Make yeah. them die slowly. Oh, I see. And You're that zombie kind of thing. holocaust. Zombie uh, holocaust. Yeah. Zombie holocaust is a, a little rough for my taste here and there, you know, because they kill animals. And I'm a vegan, so <laughs> I, I'm a vegan horror director. But uh, no, I'm I'm a huge fan of Italian horror. And in fact, on Sunday, I'm going to be doing a postmortem live at the American Cinematheque with Dario Argento showing oh, great. Suspiria. So I'm very excited about that one. That's and funny. Dario did two of the Masters of Horror as well. And I remember, I think it was either Zombie or Dr. Butcher, where it's listed as the director is something like John Martin. Yes. <laughs> right, right. But it's a, it's a guy always, with 17 vowels in his name. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's probably Martino or something. Yeah. Are, are, you, are you a fan of, of, of smart, campy horror too, make stuff like the Fibes movies? Oh, I love the Fibes movies. Aren't they yeah, wonderful? Robert Fuest, yeah, yeah. Those were, were really great. Well, and a lot of the Amicus movies of the day, the Tales from the Crypt and Vault of Horror and oh, sure. Tales that Witness Madness and Asylum, they had that element of of self-deprecation and, and a little bit of a wink in there as well. And a lot of that was like Robert Block was the writer of the book Psycho was based on, also wrote Asylum and right. some of those other collections. That, What's the one with Burgess Meredith? Did Block write that one too? Torture Garden? Torture Garden. Oh my God, I yes. I think he might have. Freddie I Francis? He, yeah, 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 yeah. I think he did. That's what I mean I, by those. Those They used to come out with those those horror anthologies. back. I mean, yeah. well, you could go back to Dead of Night. Sure. that. But there, were, there were a lot of the them first. in the day. There were, and uh, I uh, I don't know why theatrically they have not succeeded well. There are a lot of them that go directly out. Uh, on video, um, things like VHS and VHS2, the ABCs of Death, Tales of Halloween, which had a very small theatrical release. But um, I think people are kind of afraid of anthologies. It's a self-fulfilling po- uh, policy of, uh, of of not believing that they can do it because they're not out there. And so it just keeps going in that cycle hopefully right. we'll suppose. break that cycle i hope yes. so and i remember when i was a kid i saw in the theater dr terror's house of horrors oh that's another one <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah that's another one of the brit ones yeah, yeah. And wasn't there a tales from the crypt feature there were there a was. few it was, in the 70s yeah yeah there, there was tales one from of the them crypt. had what's his name billy zane I'm, talk, I'm going way back to the 70s. Yeah, this is the 70s. Oh, the, 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 Billy Zale, the Billy Zane one was, yeah, uh, Bordello of Blood. Bordello of Blood. Yeah. I remember yeah. one from the 70s with a homicidal Santa Claus. 
Yes. That was yes. Tales from the Crypt. That's and they the remade Tales. it. Robert Zemeckis remade it for the TV pilot. One of the three uh, stories yes, of the pilot did. for Tales from the Crypt. But yeah, that uh, Tales from the Crypt, the British movie, and Joan Collins was the woman in that episode in the in the British film. Indeed, she was. And then yeah. later on, didn't they do like Black Christmas? That was uh, also Black. a homicidal Santa. I think that was Bob Clark. I think that oh, was. it was Bob Clark, and yeah. it was Olivia Hussey and Keir Delay. Look my, at you, my fan, <laughs> Olivia Hussey. Yeah, there you go. Bob Clark, by the way, and people I guess know him for Porky's, but he made a good Holmes picture too, the Mur- Murder by Decree. It's a great film. It's fantastic. I, I love that film. Yeah, it's, with it's James very Mason underrated. Yeah, yeah, and. And I think Christopher Plummer playing uh, Christopher Plummer was Holmes, and uh, it, it's really a good film. That if people have an interest in in Sherlock Holmes and have not seen that, really owe it to themselves. That and Time After Time would be a great double feature. Time After oh, Time yeah. comes up on this show a lot. Yeah, we had Richard well, Kind here talking about it last time week. Time travel, yeah, came up. In. Yeah, to, and it's funny because we used to do these shorter episodes. Well, we still do still do them on Thursdays, but we used to focus on movies. And the Changeling was a movie that came up, and time after mm. time, and the, we did the Wicker Man, oh, and wow. uh, and uh, Murder by Decree, and oh, a bunch of those, yeah, and and Doctor Fibes, you know these are, these are the movies, and we see we follow you on Trailers from Hell, ah, that's, too, Mick. A, that's a great thing that Joe Dante put together, yeah. I met, the, he, oh, go ahead. No, I met, no, just, I uh, met Vincent Price twice. Really, I did to too. Say. I I met him once when I was in college. Yeah, and he was amazing, right? Yes, he was one of those I wanted to really spend a whole afternoon with. Because first time I met him was on Thick of the Night when Alan Thick did that show. So I, I did some bit on the show, and I was doing some imitations in it. And afterwards, I sit down and I feel this big hand on my shoulder and I turn around and I'm looking face to face with Vincent Price. And he goes, I loved your Peter Laurie imitation. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, wow, what a. A fucking thrill. Do a little of the tingler for Mick. He'll enjoy it. He's a guy who will appreciate it. Let me tell you the second part. Then years later. I was at the Horror Awards, and and I see Vincent Price there, and I went over and I said, look, you probably don't remember this, but we were both on Alan Thicke's show, Thick of the Night. And he goes, oh, yes, that was a terrible show. <laughs> <laughs> but my favorite, of course, in movies, Scream, Scream for Your Lives. The tingler is loose in the theater. Scream for your lives. And then he says. <laughs> and, and then he says, because it's a movie within a movie. It takes place in a movie theater. He goes, right. we will resume the broadcast of this movie in a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> what was your experience with him, Mick? Well, I actually, uh, he came to San Diego when I was uh, going to college in San Diego, uh, and he had made a pilot that no one wanted of him reading Edgar Allan Poe short stories. And so they put it into the afternoon movie slot on the local movie uh, channel, uh, on the local TV channel. 
And I went to the studio in the hopes that I could meet him there. And I was able to, was able to watch the show as he was doing it and talk to him afterwards. And he was just the nicest man in the world. Isn't that nice? I mean, could not have been more pleasant and outgoing and supportive and, and really friendly. I got one question from a fan here before, oh, before we but wrap. Before you read that. Okay. One thing that scared me, but they said he changed over the years. They said that Vincent Price, and I think his daughter even said this, he was anti-Semitic. Really? But, yeah. But, oh, oh, at the very beginning, yeah. Yeah, at the beginning, his upbringing, she said, was like, you know, that's how he was taught. And then as he went out to Hollywood and he actually knew Jews and were friends with them, that that changed. To meet a Jew is to love a Jew. (laughs) Well, except for the ones that meet me. We we break news on this show, Mick. Better than win. Victoria Price, I guess he was from St. Louis. He was from Ah, where my mother was from. Yeah. He was from the Midwest. Did your mother hate the Jews? Only specific ones. He plays along. Uh, this is from a, this is from a fan, John John Leary, and he wants to know: Are there any Stephen King books or stories that Mick would like to adapt that he hasn't had a chance to take well, a the crack one, at? The one I most wanted to do has just been made and is coming out on Netflix this week Damn. called Gerald's Game. Yeah, uh, that was. Oh, one that's the one where he's uh, a she's, she's in handcuffs to the, yeah, after yeah. a sex uh, act. Yes. No, they used to. Yes. He used to like to handcuff his wife and have sex with her. Yes, and they go to a cabin in the woods to do that on vacation, and he cuffs her to the bed, and has a heart attack and dies on her. Um, that's the beginning of the story. Wow! It all takes place there. It's incredibly powerful. It's really great, and a wonderful writer director named Mike Flanagan just made that movie, and it, it starts on Netflix. So that's the one I was most obsessed with doing. There are plenty of other things I'd love to do, but, um, you know, that was the one I really wanted the most. Thank goodness Mike did a great job with it, and it's a really good movie. We could talk uh, horror movies with you day and night here, Mick. We could, <laughs> we could keep going. Tell us the plug again. Nightmare Cinema is the movie? Nightmare Cinema is the movie, uh, and it will be out... Um, Early next year, uh, we're still in post-production on it now, doing all the visual effects and everything, and and uh, it's a, a potent little thing. And then the podcast is post-mortem, and uh, the old interviews that and things I've put up on mickgarrisinterviews.com that are there for the taking, and uh, just basically kind of my library and my contribution to the genre. It's great to see those faces. I mean, it's, you're interviewing, he interviews Jackie Cooper when Superman, when he's playing oh, Harry, Harry wow. White and Superman. Yeah. And it's just yeah. great to see those people. And what was Christopher Lee like in person? Christopher Lee was very grand and he loved the sound of his voice. Oh, <laughs> so <right>. did I. <laughs> like you, Gil. <laughs> <laughs> and so did I for that matter, but... The first time when I called him, I couldn't believe I'm talking to Christopher Lee on the phone. And 45 minutes later, I'm looking at my watch and go, when is this going to end? But he was a great guest. But, you know, you didn't have to do much in the way of questions. He I was see. full of answers. I'll bet. I, you know, I heard with Christopher Lee, he was another bullshit artist <laughs> in that, like, he talks about 
his his army days. Yeah. And they said somebody looked it up and they said he was a perfectly good soldier, but he wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't this, a Nazi killer. Yeah. He he nah. makes it sound like he single handedly defeated the Third Reich. <laughs> well, well, he he um, definitely had belief in his abilities, and he was great. I mean, there was nobody like him, and he no, was terrific. Nobody and like him. He would agree with that. And <laughs> and I heard that Christopher Lee used to call up Peter Cushing, and he would imitate cartoon characters. <laughs> Like that's fantastic. I hope that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I pray that's true. That's fantastic. I know he and John Landis were very good friends, and I was able to have dinners with them a couple of times, and, and he was fascinating. But the dinners, you know, if if you have uh, – Landis is a very loquacious guy as well and very funny, and Christopher Lee, most of his stories are very, very serious. So it was a fascinating evening of conversation. I'll bet. Landis is another guy we'd love to get on this show. Oh, you should. He's he's the greatest. Yeah. And we'll we'll take you up on uh, on uh, on the offer of uh, hooking us up. Do it absolutely. Uh, so what else? All right. We could ask. I got a, twenty more cards. I could keep asking this man <laughs> questions. It's- I I could have devoted this uh, entire time to just Lon Chaney Jr. <laughs> That's what a fan. It would of get a little bit repetitive <laughs> yeah. for the audience. <laughs> Yeah, until but I, I at least brought you news about his schlongs. So. Yes, well, I mean that's that's really breaking news. We've done 170 of these shows, and he's, <laughs> never I've never heard. seen him get so excited. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what to think of that. <laughs> so I guess uh, this is—he's been the perfect Halloween guest. Yeah. Oh, perfect. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we we had Tom Savini well, do one. We had Sarah Karloff do one. We had oh, uh, so I think we had Ron Chaney. Oh yeah, and Victoria Price. And this is this was just perfect. Oh. Well, I'm very honored to be a part of this great show, and and I'm such a fan, Gilbert, of yours. And uh, you know, from Aflac back, you know. Yeah, <laughs> we don't talk about that. <laughs> oh, okay, show. I didn't bring that up. <laughs> okay, nice way to end the show. Doing something you don't want to talk about that gets cut, right? <laughs> So, I'm Gilbert Gottfried. This has been Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal podcast with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre. Once again, recorded at Nutmeg with our engineer, Frank Verderosa. And we've had on a guest today that confirms that Lon Chaney Jr., the Wolfman himself, has uh, had... A giant dick. <laughs> Confirmed by Maria Uspenskaya. Yes. yes. <laughs> Who he would fuck oh, during commercial <laughs> During lunch hour, he would bring Uspenskaya and she'd go, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> uh, do, his, do the Maria before you sign off. Even a man who is pure at heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Perfection. <laughs> Thank you, Mick Harris. Thanks, Mick. This was a treat. The man who saw Lon Chaney Jr.'s giant dick. Now, Mick. wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> Thanks, Mick. Happy Thank Halloween. You, Thank you, Mick. And to you, boo. <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal Podcast is produced by Dara Gottfried and Frank Santapadre with audio production by Frank Verderosa. Our researchers are Paul Rayburn and Andrea Simmons. Web and social media is handled by Mike McPadden, Greg Pear, and John Bradley Seals. Special audio contributions by John Beach. Special thanks to John Murray, John Fodiatis, and Nutmeg Creative, especially Sam Giovanco and Daniel Farrell for their assistance. <laughs>